This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. And let's remember Kendrick Castillo, the student killed Tuesday at STEM School Highlands Ranch. He was 18 and just about to graduate. Castillo wanted to be an engineer, but he'd already been working in the field at a company that makes valves used in everything from medical devices to cooking equipment. His boss there was Rachel Short. The number one memory is his smiling face that was present every day, every moment that he was at work with us. Kendrick was a person of joy. Um, It didn't matter what you wanted to talk about, what kind of day you were having. He came in and lit up the room. Um, His personality was upbeat, caring, loving, um, and truly compassionate. What do you think drove him to work for your company? This was an apprenticeship, right? It was. He did an internship with us, and then he did such an outstanding job. I went ahead and offered him a position within the company that he held for the last 18 months. What drove him to join us, I think, was the fact we're a very technology-based company, and engineering and technology is what drove Kendrick and for a very young 18-year-old to bring the value and the insight and the general knowledge that he did is something that I've never seen in my career, especially at somebody at this age. Oh, my goodness. He had a bright future ahead. It sounds like you have no doubt about that. No doubt about it whatsoever. How did you learn about his death? Um, unfortunately, I was called by somebody very close to the situation and informed that it was confirmed that it was Kendrick. Apparently, he lunged at a shooter and is credited with with helping disarm uh, the suspect. That is what I have heard as well. And from knowing Kendrick as well as I do, I would have no doubt that that would have been his absolute first reaction without hesitation. How are you dealing with the loss? I, I have to say, I ran across an old photo of Kendrick. It was an article about him, I think, at a different apprenticeship, beaming in front of some uh, piece of equipment. It's hard to put words to the, the loss, I think. It is beyond words. Me personally, I'm broken and devastated. And then in my role, I have responsibilities for an entire organization that is broken and devastated and just at a loss for words for the situation. I can honestly say nothing in life ever prepares you to go through something like this. How do you think you'll remember him? I wonder if there's discussion of something specifically at work or something like that. There is. Um, We have already selected our favorite photo of key team members that he worked with, and it's been blown up into a specific picture frame that we can all put our favorite memories around and we will put it in the lobby at our facility. And in addition to that, we're going to name a few of the assembly techniques and things that we do inside the manufacturing side of our business after Kendrick, because he had such an instrumental part of developing them or bringing them fully to fruition. Thank you for sharing your memories. My pleasure. Rachel Short is president and CEO of Bakara USA, based in Englewood. Kendrick Castillo was an employee there before he was killed this week at STEM School Highlands Ranch. Sophomore Marcus Sovich survived the attack. He was in world history when the lockdown began, and he says he heard a thumping in the distance. Which later we would learn that they were gunshots. The room I was in was extremely muffled, so it was hard to tell. A little bit later on, we could hear the SWAT 
running through the hallways. We were all against the walls, specifically away from the door and under tables. What kinds of conversations, if any, were going on in the classroom while this was happening? I wasn't talking with anyone, but I did see some people texting over phones and from the sounds of it. They were asking, like, was that a gunshot that they heard or how on the news feed their school was popping up with the shooting. Oh, my goodness. At what point did you leave the classroom and how did that go? We left the classroom when the SWAT team like, busted down the door and then they pointed their guns at us and told us to put our hands in the air and they walked us single file out of the school and into the Hilton Inn parking lot across the street. Uh, how quickly were you able to get in touch with your family to let them know you were okay? I probably could have texted my mom once we realized something was up, but at the time it just didn't cross my mind. And by the time we got to the parking lot of the Hilton Inn, my mom texted me asking me if I was okay. Did you know any of the of the injured or perhaps the shooters, the alleged shooters? I did not know the shooters, but I did know one of the injured. What are you comfortable telling me about that person? From what I understand, they had the least severe injury. They were grazed in the ankle or foot by a bullet. Not too long after, we did get texts from them while they were in the ER telling us that like they were okay. My goodness, what a, what a thing to have to say, Marcus, that getting grazed by a bullet might have been the least serious injury. That's um, yeah. it's a difficult reality. Do you think that your teachers were well prepared? And do you think that the lockdown and all of the steps that you took, do you think that they were worth it? I think the many drills that we had had before and, and just like all the steps that we took during the actual real thing were indeed worth it. If we didn't have any lockdowns and we didn't take this seriously, then I feel like there would have been more injuries and possibly casualties. Do you want to say anything about your teacher and how your teacher responded? He was very calm, uh, which I kind of expected that from him. One thing I do remember, though, with him is that five, seven, ten minutes into the lockdown, I saw him looking at his phone, and I remember an expression on his face that was kind of uh, like you could tell there was something wrong. What effect do you think this is having on you? At the moment, talking about it, just a little bit uh, jittery. Uh, when it was happening, I really didn't feel much. I uh, was kind of just, I guess, in shock. Not much was able to go through my head. Do you think you'd be okay going back to STEM next year? Uh, yes. What makes you say that? You, you didn't even hesitate. The thing about STEM, what makes the school great, at least for me, is the people that go there. And it's the interactions that a lot of us have with each other and how we can all kind of help each other get through things like this. Marcus, thanks for being with us, and I appreciate your candor. Thank you for trying to get this story out there. Marcus Sovich is a sophomore at STEM School Highlands Ranch. The STEM shooting comes 20 years after the attack at Columbine High School. Now, to mark that anniversary, we created the podcast Since Columbine. And a lot of what we learned about school shooters, lockdowns, and trauma applies to what just happened in Douglas County. 
CPR's Andrea Dukakis is here. She was on the podcast team. Hi, Andrea. Hi, Ryan. It can feel like school shootings are becoming more common, but are they? No, actually not. I've spoken to a lot of experts about mass shootings, and they say they remain extremely rare. They also say mass shooting incidents have been declining overall since the 90s. In fact, schools are one of the safest places kids can be. Uh, Something else that's rare is having two attackers. That appears to be the case here. That's right. There are two suspects in custody in the STEM shooting, but by far most school shootings are carried out by one attacker. For our podcast since Columbine, I spoke to one of the most prominent researchers on mass shootings. His name is Peter Langman, and I reached back out to him yesterday because of recent events. I know of four instances, one in Brazil and three in this country. So if school shootings are rare, school shootings by two perpetrators are extraordinarily rare. One of the three in this country was Columbine, also Jonesboro, Arkansas in 1998, and the other, of course, was this week's attack in Highlands Ranch. Langman says his research suggests that if multiple people plan a school attack, it's more likely to be discovered and prevented. Most perpetrators discuss their plans or disclose them in one way or another to their peers through social media. So if there's two or more perpetrators, then that just increases the likelihood that someone will hear about it. Experts call this leakage, and it may seem counterintuitive, but they say those plotting a school shooting often will broadcast it. The good news is that that gives security experts time to prevent it. In the case of Tuesday's shootings, we don't know what information, if any, was out there. And if there was information, it clearly didn't stop it. Now, am I right that this week's shooting at STEM School Highlands Ranch brings the number of school shootings in Colorado since Columbine to four? That's right. Columbine was back in 1999. There, 12 students and a teacher died before two gunmen killed themselves. Since then, a hostage situation in 2006 at Platt Canyon High School. That's where student Emily Keyes died. Deer Creek Middle School in 2010, where two students were injured. There was Arapahoe High School in 2013. Student Claire Davis was shot and later died from the attack. And then this week, where 18-year-old Kendrick Castillo was killed and eight students were injured. As we heard from Marcus Sovich earlier, the kids at STEM were put on lockdown during the shooting. You covered lockdown drills in your podcast, Andrea. What light can you shed? Well, as you reported yesterday, Douglas County follows a security program called the Standard Response Protocol. John Michael Keyes and his wife Ellen were instrumental in developing it. They're the parents of Emily Keyes, who died at Platte Canyon. That's the hostage case I mentioned back in 2006. The two also founded a group called the I Love You Guys Foundation after a text Emily sent to her parents during the attack. There's a lot to the program, but specifically in a lockdown um, or a drill, kids are told locks, light, out of sight. Um, That is lock the classroom doors, turn out the lights, get out of sight. My colleague Nathaniel Miner and I went to Syracuse, New York to watch some lockdown drills and research that was being done on them. 
And just watching these drills frightened me for the kids, especially the little ones. They have to cower in a classroom together with the lights out. So I can't imagine what these kids must have felt Tuesday, knowing this wasn't just a drill, but the real thing. You also, in your reporting for Since Columbine, learned something about school shooters and how they get guns. Historically here, we're not talking about the current case. Right. I want to start by saying we still don't know how the suspects got their guns, which were apparently handguns. It's just that when I interviewed that expert psychologist, Peter Langman, he said that most school shooters get their guns from a parent or relative who failed to secure them. So it's less common for them to buy them. Again, we don't know how these students got their guns yet. And you interviewed former President Bill Clinton about his role as consoler in chief after a shooting. He was president when Columbine happened. Any insight we should share from that, Andrea? Yeah, Clinton told me that when it comes to these tragedies, it's critical they remain in our consciousness and that they don't fade out with the next news story. Somehow, more than anything else, America's got to recover the ability to spend a little time every day feeling like they do when there's a horrible crisis like that. President Trump tweeted about the STEM shooting this week. The tweet said, quote, Our nation grieves at the unspeakable violence that took a precious young life and badly injured others in Colorado. God be with the families, and thank you to the first responders for bravely intervening. Andrea, thank you. Thank you. CPR's Andrea Dukakis. You can listen to our podcast since Columbine at CPR.org or wherever you get your podcasts. An important note about our shooting coverage, we will only use the names of the suspects when necessary, and we'll we'll keep it to a minimum in those cases. Returning to your childhood home can bring up a lot of emotions, but sticker shock? That's what Amy Scott, senior correspondent for Marketplace, felt. She drove by her family's former home in Colorado Springs and discovered it was for sale. The price tag? Well, we'll find out. Amy, welcome to the program. Hi, thanks for having me. When you saw the open house sign in the yard of your childhood home, uh, you just had to go inside. I climbed the creaky stairs to my old room, took a deep breath, and opened the closet door. It's still here. Come here. Down near the bottom of the door frame, where I hoped my mom wouldn't see them, were my initials. AES 74 to 89. <laughs> of all things, that's going to make me cry. That's from your recent Marketplace story. Uh, were you surprised to find your initials were still there? Yes, this is something I'd wondered about <laughs> ever since we moved away. Um, I had carved these initials on the day we moved out. Um, I was not happy to be leaving this house. And um, I thought my mom didn't know about it, but I always wondered. And it was actually kind of um, sweet to see them still there. Uh, what else looked the same? What had changed in this house? Well, it's weird to walk into your old house because you kind of expect to see it looking the same way you left it. Um, but, you know, we moved out in the 80s. Uh, the decor was quite changed. It had hardwood floors now. It, we had had this kind of gold 70s uh, textured carpet, black <laughs> Naga height furniture. Um, it was very modern. And the woman who owned the house had taken great care in painting it, these beautiful colors that she'd mixed herself. She dyed some of the walls with red zinger tea mixed gold dust into the paint. Um, It looked really beautiful, but the bones were the same. 
I didn't know you could use tea. Okay. Uh, nostalgia aside, let's talk <laughs> about this sticker shock that you felt. How much did your parents pay for the house in, I think it was 1971? Yeah, so they paid $19,500, which, you know, you can barely get a car for that now. Um, adjusted for inflation, that would be about 122000 So still quite low. Um, and it was on the market when I saw it for $572,000. $572,000. Okay. What, what, yeah. what does that tell us about housing in Colorado Springs in particular? Well, you know, the Springs is booming, um, as is Denver. And uh, that neighborhood is the historic old North End. We just called it the North End when I was growing up there, but the city (laughs) has expanded so much. Um, It's a desirable neighborhood, but this is really happening all over the country. Um, I heard from so many people who also said they would not be able to afford their childhood homes today um, because of... uh, inflation, basically. Um, In some cases, it's gentrification. Neighborhoods that had been affordable have, uh, you know, been um, spruced up significantly. Uh, People want bigger houses. And so they cost more. You know, the attic that was unfinished when I lived there has been finished since. Um, But there are a lot of uh, pressures pushing up prices around the country. And I think it was interesting to see it in such a personal way. Yeah. Uh, I wonder if they're going to get what they're asking. Have you noticed if it's sold or if the price has increased or decreased or what? Well, the house um, has been taken off uh, of the market, and I don't know if it has sold. It hadn't been selling, and the seller had had to lower the price uh, several times. Um, but I should say that it's in keeping with what homes are selling for throughout the neighborhood. So mm. it wasn't an out-there price. Um, This is what people are paying to live in the old North End in these beautiful old Victorian homes in Colorado Springs. Um, And I think the seller thought that maybe um, her taste uh, in in the colors that I described, kind of eccentric paint colors, maybe uh, weren't appealing to people. It's not clear why she was having trouble selling it. Um, But it's possible that it has been sold. Why is it so expensive to purchase a home now? And I wonder how often that just means it's out of reach, especially for younger people, you know? Yes, we're absolutely in an affordability crisis, not just in Colorado, but around the country. Um, It's a large part of it is just supply and demand. There aren't enough homes for sale, particularly in the affordable price range. That's partly because builders really shut down their building after the recession and the housing bubble burst uh, in the last decade. People are staying in their homes longer, fixing them up instead of uh, moving. So that just means there's less homes, especially at that kind of starter price level Mm. for um, first-time buyers. Um, Also, low interest rates for, for years now have really helped those who can afford to buy a house pay higher and higher prices. But we're kind of hitting a wall, I think, and that's starting to shift a little. People are having to bring their prices down. We're not seeing as much price growth as we had been. So I think uh, the other side of that supply and demand is kind of kicking in and, and the demand just can't keep up with those prices. Amy, thanks for sharing the numbers and the nostalgia with us. Thank you. Amy Scott of Marketplace with a story of housing prices that's both personal and universal. Let's get a bit more perspective now from our own Ben Marcus, CPR business reporter. Hi, Ben. Hey, thanks for having me. What parts of Colorado, I'm curious, have seen an explosion in housing costs in the last few years? 
really it's pretty widespread, but most of the price gains since the recession have been along the northern front range. So really anything from Metro Denver to Fort Collins to Boulder, and really lately uh, Colorado Springs. Now, it should be said that even though we've seen huge double-digit price increases in some of these cities over the last 10 years, these are still price gains that are less than previous booms in Colorado and Denver in the 90s and in the late 70s. Price increases were even bigger, 15% and more year over year, whereas these days we see uh, when it's really high, it's around 10% price growth. Okay, that's great perspective. Now, down in the springs where Amy Scott's childhood home is, uh, prices have increased almost 57% in the last five years. What's contributing to that boom? In part, Denver. So people who are priced out of Denver can find affordable properties in Colorado Springs. Um, and I thought that what we would see when we looked into that, that most people would be kind of in the northern El Paso County area to make the commute to Denver a little less. But uh-huh. we hear from real estate agents that people are even buying in southern El Paso County down as far as Fountain. Uh, and sometimes these people are telecommuting and they're able to have flexible hours to make that commute a little less. But you can just get a lot more house in Colorado Springs than you can in Denver. Do you anticipate that more people will start looking well outside the metro area for homes then? Yeah, I mean, they have to. Um, it's kind of the drive till you qualify model. Um, while millennials are ready to buy, uh, they show in surveys they have strong desire to buy. They can't afford to purchase in the city center areas where they want to. And so they're ending up in places like even as far as Bennett, Colorado, which is out on the eastern plains. Um, it's hard to find anything up north that's that's affordable, but they're kind of going south, too. So really, the metro area, people are having to push out farther and further to find the house that they can afford. Are those communities prepared for that influx? No. So uh, home construction really isn't um, at a a reasonable level anywhere, um, let alone in the outlying communities. I think that partly why we just haven't seen people flooding some of these poor neighborhoods like in southwest Denver or Westminster or Aurora. But now those are kind of the only affordable options that are left. So even there, you're starting to see people move into those neighborhoods. But no, as Amy Scott said, there's simply not enough home construction to meet the demand. Ben, thanks for helping us understand the dynamics. Mm, Thank you. CPR's business reporter, Ben Marcus, giving us the latest on Colorado's housing market. State lawmakers have wrapped up the legislative session, but they left a lot of work unresolved and may have created some unexpected divisions. Let's get some perspective from Purplish, the politics podcast from CPR News. Here once again is Sam Brash. Realizing how exhausted I am. Realizing how what? How exhausted I am. Oh, dude, I'm sure you're like completely, completely spent. Yeah. Okay, so last Friday, the Colorado legislative session ended. And after four months of frantic work, state lawmakers were finally able to come up for air including this one. Just start with your name. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so my name is Julie Gonzalez, and I am the state senator uh, for Northwest and downtown Denver. Gonzalez is a progressive Democrat. This is my first legislative session. Um, I was and I wanted to talk to her because earlier in the year, she'd been through an experience that I think says a lot about the session. See, Democrats had full control of the state capitol this year for the first time since 2014. But that doesn't mean every Democrat got what they wanted. 
even when they all mostly agreed on the issues. But that's fine. This year, process, the interpersonal drama of lawmaking, often eclipsed policy. Um, It is so much more complicated than the schoolhouse rock version of, you know, I'm just a bill. I'm just a bill. Yes, I'm only a bill. And I'm sitting here on Capitol Hill. And I learned that in some ways the hard way. And maybe the best example of that was an effort to abolish the death penalty. Gonzalez co-sponsored the bill with other Democrats who decided to really fast-track the legislation. The bill was introduced on one day. The following day, there was a press conference. And the third day, there was um, a committee hearing, right? And that felt very compressed, particularly for um, the families of victims. One of whom works just a few desks away from Gonzalez. Members, I stand before you not only as a senator, but I stand before you as a crime victim. This is Democratic State Senator Rhonda Fields. And two of the three men now on death row in Colorado, they murdered her son and his fiance. Back in March on the Senate floor, Fields blasted her colleagues, saying they were moving forward on the death penalty issue way too quickly. When we think about the magnitude of abolishing the death penalty, surely, surely there should be enough time to ensure a thorough and comprehensive debate. And Fields' words had an effect. The bill stalled for weeks as Democrats argued behind the scenes before it got to the Senate floor. You know, I had been working on a speech about why we needed to pass the bill for weeks. I'd like to begin by... I'd like to begin this conversation... It came to a point where we were trying to, you know, count our votes to pass the bill out of the state Senate. And there were four colleagues of mine who had such deep concerns around the process that they said, I don't want to take a vote on this bill. I could ask you to cast your vote publicly, to reject this irrevocably cruel, unusual, and ghastly practice. (sighs) Um, And it was only like that morning that I had to go and change it to this is why I'm, I'm pulling the bill. I ask that this bill be laid over because I believe wholeheartedly that the way in which we treat each other through this process is as important as the policy itself. So when this bill comes back next session, there will be nothing left to hide behind except this abhorrent terrible practice. I think that there are always lessons in loss. The way in which I'm going to be a lawmaker is to value um, and really listen to uh, my colleagues. Um, I know that we'll do this right next year. And this is just one of many dramatic moments from the session. This episode, a recap of the last four months and what it all means now that it's over. 
Okay, to help me do that, I'm joined by CPR's public affairs editor, Megan Verlee. Hey. And CPR's public affairs reporter, Ben Tabarkland. Hey, Sam. Hey. Okay, so I wanted to start uh, with that story of Julie Gonzalez and the death penalty because I, I, got, I think it got at this you know, bigger thing that we were all wondering about, right? You know, were Democrats going to get everything they wanted? And was it going to be as bad uh, as Republicans worried it would be? So, Benta, I was wondering if you could start that out and just rewind us back to the beginning of the session and talk about how these two parties were sort of framing the debates to come. Like, what did we show up thinking about at the beginning of the year? Definitely two different narratives, depending upon which party you're in. Democrats felt a very big mandate to come in and enact a big, bold agenda, as they called it. They won every statewide race, took control of the legislature, had the governor's office. And even before the session began, Republicans were vocal and concerned about what they feared would be a Democratic overreach and saying, you know, yeah, you did win, but there's still a lot of Republicans in this state. We won our seats, too. We have our own constituents. And so that was the dynamic going in. Like, why was overreach a word we just heard over and over and over again? It seems sort of, like, strangely consistent. I think because it's been an effective attack word in Colorado. Colorado voters, even though they went very, very blue in this last November, have tended to like to feel pretty moderate. And so I think if you're a party that can cast the other party as, and this is another phrase that you hear a lot, too extreme for Colorado, Mm -hmm. you're going to do well at the ballot box. (laughs) Um, yeah. So but Democrats, like you said, were saying, hey, we won. We ran up these huge uh, margins, uh, especially in state Senate races. We have this mandate. Did they spend their political capital in the ways you guys expected? You know, I think other than what we just heard about not getting a death penalty repeal through, there were a lot of issues that had been out there for a while that they did really move on, like oil and gas reform. So oil and gas reform being, you know, that they passed these rules that really changed how oil and gas is regulated in the state. And it also gave uh, new power to to local governments. So that, that stood out to you guys as a really big issue. Yes, it's something Democrats have been trying to, I guess, if in their perspective, fix for years, try to have more oversight over oil and gas industry. It's been top of mind for a lot of Democrats and the Speaker of the House, the Senate Majority Leader, plenty of them said, look, we ran on this issue specifically. And so they they definitely felt a mandate from constituents. I mean, the other thing we saw early uh, in the session was was Democrats really go all in for a red flag law, right? That uh, would allow judges to order firearms removed from someone who's been deemed a threat uh, either to themselves or others. And and that does seem like a a big campaign delivery for Democrats. They were able to get that done. It was a top priority. We also had an incoming lawmaker, Tom Sullivan, a Democrat whose son was killed in the Aurora Theater shooting. And he amplified it as well with his personal story. And I think that was very powerful in the building. What's interesting is this has split law enforcement, but the original bill actually came to Democrats via law enforcement through the Douglas County Sheriff because one of his deputies was killed by a mentally ill man. And so they see it as a way to prevent fatal tragedies where other folks see it as this gun grab. So I think it's going to be something we'll continually cover and I think it's going to cast a long shadow. Right. Because a number of sheriffs, they they refuse to 
to carry it out. What's going to happen there, Megan? I don't think we know. I I think the only thing we can predict is a lot of litigation. There's already one lawsuit against it based on sort of the process around how it was passed. I assume that if that doesn't move forward, there'll be lawsuits challenging its constitutionality. One thing I was very interested in with the red flag bill is how um, sort of different the the passage of it felt to the last round of gun control measures that Democrats passed in 2013. From you guys, I didn't hear sort of the off-mic angst that I think Democrats might have had passing stuff the last time around. They seem to really feel like this is a policy that's passed in a lot of other states. We want it here, and we are not going to worry too much about what happens next. Betsy, you've you've been um, at, at the Capitol for years. When it comes to, you know, the speed of the session, that was something we heard from Julie Gonzalez, that the death penalty rollout just happened really fast. There was a press conference, there was a hearing, and it all happened within, you know, days of each other, just really compressed. Uh, did we see that on other bills this session? And, and did that stand out to you, Benta? It did, especially with the death penalty. I was covering that and trying to ask on a daily, hourly basis, when is this going to be introduced? When is the hearing? And then was really shocked that it, it was that fast. That was around the same time the oil and gas, you know, the biggest overall in state history, huge, huge piece of legislation. It was dropped on a Friday night and the hearing was Tuesday. And I understood why Democrats were doing that. It's less time for the opposition to mobilize. They didn't want to leave that oil and gas bill out there for weeks and put more pressure on potential wavering senators and have it fail in that chamber. And that really raised fairness concerns, though, because the one thing our process guarantees, Sam, you did a whole earlier episode of Purplish <laughs> on this, is a hearing in where the public can come and weigh in on a bill. And if you give the public 24, 48 hours to know that they need to take a day off from work to come and talk about a piece of legislation, a lot of them can't make it. And that had a lot of repercussions. Yes. It did. So so let's talk about that because I feel like there's almost, you know, Act 1 and Act 2 of the legislative session. And a lot of that was divided up by when Republicans really started to use, you know, every card they could play to, to slow down the Democrats. Ben, to just, just talk us through one more time, like, what happened? Well, it happened in response to the oil and gas bill and also death penalty at the same time. And Republicans started using a provision that was put in our state constitution when we first became a state and a lot of lawmakers couldn't actually read. And you can ask for a bill to be read at length. That's why it, it exists is because some lawmakers couldn't read. True. Yeah, not everyone wow. was literate. I, so. <laughs> I love Colorado history. Right? <laughs> And so things got very interesting when Republicans asked for a 2,000-page bill to be read at length. That would have taken about a week, meant no other Senate committee hearings, no floor debate, and really ground the chamber to a halt. Okay, we're recapping the 2019 legislative session. And Bente, you were uh, reminding us about this moment where Republicans started to ask bills uh, to be read at length. How did that change things at the Capitol? Significantly, uh, the Democratic Senate President Leroy Garcia, to speed things along, set up a bank of five computers to read different pages of the bill at like kind of warp speed. <laughs> And then in return, Republicans sued him in Denver District Court for violating the Constitution. They ended up winning. It did change the tone. It changed how people were communicating with each other. It did give Republicans a lot more leverage because they had this incredible power. They didn't necessarily have the votes, but they could 
bring their voices to the table more. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chair. I also move House Bill 1172 and ask that it be read at length. Mr. Minority Leader. Thank you, Mr. President. Uh, I object to the motion and ask that the journal for Monday be read at length. Member of the Uniform Law Commission, I believe this is a bill, the contents of which everyone should know of and be apprised of prior to voting on it. So I respectfully request that Senate Bill 99 be read at length. It's interesting how much we kept coming back to that moment in further coverage of the session because it did um, it did set up everything that came after. I mean, my favorite thing that came out of all of that was at one point the Republican Senate communications director made a set of bumper stickers with a uh, Republican uh, senator on it. And it said, you know, that's a nice bill you have there. It'd be a shame if someone asked for it to be read at length. Which I think just sort of like I love that. I yeah, because we we have gotten some feedback. Uh, I think a lot of reporters have gotten some feedback about like you know this is you guys are reporting on these uh, tactics that Republicans are using as as obstructionist tactics. The thing is, if you ask Republicans about it. They say, yeah, that's exactly what they were trying to do, not necessarily be obstructionist for the sake of obstructing, but at least make their voices heard, represent their constituents and stop Democrats from passing policies they disagreed with. And that's the role of the minority party, whether it's a Republican or a Democrat. Which means that we probably have seen the dawn of a new tool that will be used possibly every session. So a lot a lot to unpack there. But let's just let's just put down the politics for a second as as much fun as it is. And just remind people uh, what might actually have happened this session that's going to matter in their lives, because a lot of a lot of really big policies did make it. Megan, like which I I think I know what you're going to say, but like which policy do you think is going to have the most immediate effect for people who aren't like us living at or near the Capitol every day? Well, full disclosure, this is the one that will have an effect on people who are exactly like me, which is that the state is now picking up the tab for full day kindergarten. And I'm the mother of a current kindergartner. I have a son who will be in kindergarten in a couple of years. And for the last nine months, I've been, you know, sending a a check to DPS every month. And it is not a small check. So this is tuition you're paying. Exactly. Sorry. Yes. So the previously the state covered about covered half day kindergarten. And if a district wants to offer full day, they either charge tuition or they move money from over from other programs. So now with the state picking up the, the whole tab and this starts in the fall, it is coming fast. Uh, districts have the money they were putting into full day kindergarten. They can spend on other things, art and music teachers, counselors, or a lot more um, pre-K slots. And I will tell you in a couple of years when my second kiddo gets to, to kindergarten, I'm definitely going to notice that. So is all that money like going to a college savings account or are you going to do something more fun with it? I'm I'm going to like Mexico for six months. Right on. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Um, And this was Governor Polis's top priority. He talked about it on the campaign trail during his first legislative speech as governor at the beginning of the session. Uh, It was quite a feat, I think, to get that through. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, okay. let's talk about Governor Polis because brand new governor uh, comes in. I'm amazed we've gotten this far without talking about it. I know. He's he's just this huge giant that's looming over the whole session. And I I think we should talk about like where we saw uh, his influence. Well, I think full day kindergarten is one. I Mm -hmm. I don't think that would have gone through without him and without it being his top priority. Another measure that was controversial didn't ultimately end up passing had to do with increasing Colorado's vaccination rates. Right. Um, we've got measles outbreaks across the country. So this issue has 
really top of mind for a lot of folks. And Colorado has the lowest kindergarten vaccination rate for measles, mumps, and rubella. A lot of health advocates want to raise that. So they had a provision to make people turn in forms to a health office. The idea was that might be a little bit more cumbersome. And Polis opposed that provision. Um, He also opposed stronger tactics some Democrats wanted to do as well. So they spent months negotiating on that. Eventually, it really didn't have the time to get through the Senate. It would have taken down a bunch of other bills with it because Republicans opposed it. And I think, you know, Polis had a huge role in that. I think we go into a session, I think we're often looking for what a governor will champion. But boy, it is so much more interesting, especially when the governor's party is also in power to look at what they oppose. And in addition to uh, the vaccination bill, there was a, a bill that would have made Colorado a lot less friendly to federal immigration enforcement. It would have restricted how local sheriffs could have worked with ICE. Um, It would have created some new protections for undocumented immigrants. And Polis stopped that bill pretty much in its tracks in a way that um, made immigration advocates very angry. You know, the Latino community was there for Polis during the election. And I think a lot of them came out of the session feeling like he did not return that support. Definitely. And I think one issue, if we're talking about, you know, the things that Democrats uh, didn't didn't get that they may have wanted is paid family leave, right? So this is a plan that would have guaranteed 12 weeks of uh, paid time off to take care of a sick relative or uh, a newborn child um, or, you know, yourself if, if you're recovering from a medical condition. And once you take that time, you can apply to the state and get uh, part of your wages reimbursed. So this would have been a, a you know vast new benefit that Coloradans could enjoy if they wanted to. But... You know, the the like lamest sounding death ever that only happens in legis- legislative stories. It was turned into a study like Megan. Wh- what do you make of that? Because you'd covered all the earlier iterations of, of Democrats trying to pass paid family leave. Well, I'll be actually interested to hear what Benta has to say. But I, I did think from my far distant haven't actually talked to a real human being who's not you two in a long time uh, <laughs> perspective, assume that this one was going to pass. It was one of the. Uh, like marquee uh, agenda items for Democrats when they didn't have double majorities, when they didn't control both chambers. And so it did seem like a gimme. I was surprised. I wasn't surprised that it had a lot of opposition. The business community has always been concerned about this in terms of implementation and uh, cost and the fact that then they have to guarantee 12 weeks off to to people for these uh, reasons. Um, I was surprised, though, that in the face of that, it um, it foundered as much as it did. Yeah, I think a lot of Democrats weren't totally on board, ultimately, including Governor Jared Polis. I think they support the underlying concept, and business community says they do too. But the concern was whether it will be financially sustainable. The big sticking point is how many people would take advantage of this benefit. Would there be enough money coming in to make it viable? It is turned into a study, but the the sponsors of the bill say it's still on track to be implemented as if the original bill had passed. Okay, so just to start wrapping things up, guys, I wonder, like... <laughs> we Never, talked, let's go forever. Let's go forever <laughs> and ever. I'm sure people want that so badly. But uh, what about most undercover bills of the session? Like, what kind of flew under the radar? A lot of very significant criminal justice reform yeah. uh, bills went through. And they weren't sort of run as a coherent package necessarily, which made them a little harder to spot. A lot of them had bipartisan support, which is great, but also means that a bill often, you know, fewer people shouting... It, is it doesn't get quite the same attention. But, um, you know, some big reforms on uh, bail and 
uh, trying to keep, not have people in jail just because they can't pay small bail amounts and um, changing the uh, drug possession from a felony to a misdemeanor so people aren't going to prison just for drug possession crimes. Those are some really significant reforms that I think it was harder to find the narrative around because they weren't at the center of a bunch of shouting. Another issue that didn't get covered a lot, we, we did cover the fact that a bill to make Denver the first place in the country to have a safe injection site right. was not going to be introduced. But some other opioid legislation dealing with that crisis did pass. Um, one of the bills would make it easier if you're in a crisis and coming out of a, an emergency room to have people to coordinate where you could go to continue your recovery versus here's a piece of paper, here's some places, figure it out yourself. Mm. Now, that's not going to get big headlines, but from from some of the sponsors, they say that's a key piece of as part of a much larger puzzle to try to help people get on the path to recovery. I want to wrap up here, and I think one way to do it is that as journalists, but also politicians do this all the time, uh, we have the tendency to use superlatives whenever we're describing a legislative session. You know, most productive, most decisive. Um, most divided. Most divided, yeah. Like, nobody ever says most fun, but, you know, that's fine. Uh, given your, like, long tenure at the Capitol, was it remarkable in any of those ways? Do any of those superlatives apply? You know, a, a lot of people across the spectrum from lobbyists, lawmakers, staffers, whoever, they say it was the toughest session they've ever experienced. The toughest. Uh, last session was also historic. We had lawmaker expelled from office, a lot of workplace sexual harassment allegations that clouded the whole session. So mm-hmm. that was very, very tense. That cloud was still there. And then you had Democrats in control of everything. And it just it was kind of hard on top of hard. And it, it just all fed into each other. So many late nights. uh I don't want to make it seem like they didn't compromise on things. They got the budget done, some big things. It never went off the rails. You know, they held it together. They did what they're constitutionally required to do. But it was pretty brutal. Brutal, yeah. And I could see it, you know, kind of in your eyes and Sam's eyes as the session went on. But I think at the same time, it is remarkable that – Democrats did do a lot of their big agenda items. They did the governor's biggest item, full-day kindergarten. They did some of their long-term desires like overhauling oil and gas regulation and uh, passing the, the red flag gun law. And as we just talked about, I think they probably set themselves up to be very productive next session if that's what they want to do in the teeth of an election because they've had these fights this year. They're going to go in knowing kind of their own uh, political geography a little bit better. Yeah. And I kind of felt sort of good about everyone saying it was a brutal session. Like I definitely felt that. I felt that it was a lot of long nights and some really tough issues and some really confusing topics. But I mean, this is what these guys are supposed to do, right? They show up for four months every year and they try to figure it out the best they can. And yeah, they took on a lot of big stuff this year. And I, I, think they get like you said they got a lot done now you both should get a vacation (laughs) now we both get to go home all right well thank you guys all for coming in uh and hopefully we can do this again soon thanks you've been listening to purplish the politics podcast from cpr news with sam brash download this episode and others wherever you get your podcasts Finally today, what questions do you have about the shooting at STEM School Highlands Ranch? We want to answer those questions. We also want to share Coloradans' experiences after the attack, 
as a student, parent, teacher, or member of the community? How are you coping? You'll find a place to ask questions or share your experience beneath any article about the shooting at CPR.org. And that's Colorado Matters for today from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Thanks for spending time with us.